Welcome listeners. Today I'm going over demonology and demon lore by Moncure Daniel Conway. This is a continuation of the demon lore series that I do here, where I narrate his works and add value where I can, like snipping out content that just frankly has aged so poorly that no one would get the references. For today's episode, the author spends more time on winter and what winter means to cultures, specifically how a culture draws on winter as an extreme to influence perception of demons and the devil, and gods. Moncure does enjoy spending time on the etymology of what makes up the thought or idea of a demon in relation to winter, and spends the first half covering off what winter means to cultures from around the world, then moves to the mid-second half of this chapter, specifically on god and demon myth. So if you love your research, and love to find out what makes cultures tick, and origins for words like cinders, coal, and flame, plus lore and mythology from very old cultures, this is the episode for you. Sit back, relax, and let me share some unique demonology and demon lore all the way back from 1879. Chapter 3. Cold, and how the topic of winter and demons share an intrinsic link. Even across immemorial generations, it is impossible to read without emotion, the legend of descent of Ishtar into Hades. Through seven gates the goddess of love passes in search of her beloved, and at each some of her ornaments and clothing are removed, by the dread guardian, Ishtar enters naked into the presence of the Queen of Death. But gods, men, and herds languish in her absence. The saviour so charms the infernal queen that she bids the judge of her realm, Anunak, absolve Ishtar from his golden throne. This is how the paragraph goes. This is the paragraph of absolution. He poured out for Ishtar the waters of life and let her go. Then the first gate let her forth, and restored to her the first garment of her body. The second gate let her forth, and restored to her the diamond of her hands and feet. The third gate let her forth, and restored to her the central girdle of her waist. The fourth gate let forth, and restored to her the small lovely gems of her forehead. The fifth gate let her forth, and restored to her the precious stones of her head. The sixth gate let her forth, and restored to her the earrings of her ears. And the seventh gate let her forth, and restored to her the great crown on her head. This old miracle play of nature, the return of summer flower by flower, is deciphered from an ancient Assyrian tablet in a town within only a few hours of another where a circle of worshippers repeat the same at every solstice. Maifir Morganwig, the Archdruid, adores still here by name as his saviour, and at the winter solstice assembles his brethren to celebrate his coming to bruise the head of the serpent of Hades. Is this a survival? No doubt. But there is no cult in the world which, if scratched, as the proverb says, will not reveal beneath it the same conception. However, it may be spiritualized. Every plan of salvation is cast in the mold of winter, conquered by the sun. The descent of love to the underworld. The delivery of the imprisoned germs of life. 
it is very instructive to compare with the myth of Ishtar, that of Hermoder, seeking the release of Baldur the Beautiful from Helheim. The deadly powers of winter are represented in the Edaic accounts of Baldur, soft summer light, the Norse Baal. His blind brother, Horder, is darkness. The demon who directed his arrow is Loki, subterranean fire. The arrow itself is of mistletoe which, fostered by winter, owes no duty to Baldur. And the realm to which he is born is that of hell, the frozen zone. Home Odor, having arrived, assured Hell that the gods were in despair for the loss of Baldur. The queen replied that it should now be tried whether Baldur was so loved. If, therefore, all things in the world, both living and lifeless, weep for him, he would return to heaven. In the end, all wept, but the old hag, Thok, her personification coined as darkness, who from her cavern sang, Thok will wail with dry eyes, Baldur's Balfire. Not quick or dead, for Karl soon care I. Let hell hold her own. So, Baldur remained in Helheim. The myth very closely resembles that of Ishtar's descent. In similar accent, the messenger of the southern god weeps and lacerates himself as he relates to the grief of the upper world. And all men and animals, since the time that Mother Ishtar descended into Hades. But in the latter, the messenger is successful. In the north, though, he's unsuccessful. In the corresponding myths of warm and sunny climes, the effort at release is more or less successful in proportion to the extent of winter. And in Adonis, released from Hades for four months every year and another four if he chose to abandon Persephone for Aphrodite, we have a reflection of a variable year. That and the similar myth of Persephone varied in the time specified for their passing in the upper and underworlds, probably in accordance with the climatic averages of the regions in which they were told. But in the tropics, it was easy to believe the release complete, as in the myth of Ishtar. In Mangayan myths, the hero, Maui, escapes from another world of fire, aided by a red pigeon. When this contest between winter's death and summer's triumph became humanized, it was Hercules, vanquishing death and completely releasing Alcestis. When it became spiritualized, it was as Christ conquering death and hell and releasing the spirits from prison. But the myth of a swift resurrection had to be artificially preserved in the far north. The legend of a full triumph over death and hell could never have originated among our Norse ancestors. Their only story resembling it, that of Iduna, related how her recovery from the giants brought back health to the gods, not men. But it was from the south that men had to hear tidings of a rescue for the earth and man. We cannot realize, now, what glad tidings were they which told this new gospel to people sitting in regions of ice and gloom, after it had been imposed on them against their reluctant fears. In manifold forms, the old combat was renewed in their festivals, and people who had long been prostrate and helpless before the terrible powers of nature were never weary of the southern fables of heroic triumphs over them, long interpreted in the simple physical sense. The great demon of the northern world is still winter, and the hereditary hatred of him is such that he is still cursed, scourged, killed, 
and buried or drowned under various names and disguises. In every Slavonic country, there are to be found about carnival time traces of ancient rites, intended to typify the death of winter and the birth of spring or summer. In Poland, a puppet made of hemp or straw is flung into a pond or swamp with the words, The Devil Take Thee. Then the participators in the deed scamper home, and if one of them stumbles and falls, it is believed he will die within the year. In Upper Lausatia, a similar figure is fastened on a pole to be pelted, then taken to the village boundary and thrown across it or cast into the water. Its bearers returning with green boughs. Sometimes the figure is shrouded in white, representing snow, and bears in its hands a broom, the sweeping storm, and a sickle, the fatal reaper. In Russia, the straw, mujik, is burned, and also in Bulgaria, in the latter, the bonfire is accompanied by the fire of guns, and by dances and songs to Lado, the goddess of spring. This reminiscence of Leto, on whose account Apollo slew the python, is rendered yet more striking by the week of archery which accompanies it, recalling the sunbeam dance of the god. In Spain and Italy, the demon puppet is scourged under the name of Judas, as indeed is the case for the Good Friday performance of Portuguese sailors in the London docks. Another similar custom in Mexico, the Judas being dressed up as a regular horned and hoofed devil. In Scotland, the pre-Christian accessories of a corresponding custom are more pronounced both in the time selected and the place. And the clave is the custom of burning the puppets of winter, and in this case, accounted for in 1878 at Berghead, a fishing village near Fores, where stands an old Roman altar locally named the Daru. A tar barrel was set on fire and carried by a fisherman around the town, while the people shouted and hallooed. If the man who carries the barrel falls, it is an evil omen. The lit barrel, having gone round the town, was carried to the top of the hill and placed on the Daru, more fuel was added. The sparks as they fly upwards are supposed to be the witches and evil spirits leaving the town. The people therefore shout and curse them as they disappear in vacancy. When the burning tar barrel falls in pieces, the fishwomen rush in and endeavor to get a lighted bit of wood from its remains. With this light, the fire on the cottage hearth is at once kindled, and it is considered lucky to keep this flame alive all the rest of the year. The charcoal of the clave is collected and put into bits up the chimney to prevent the witches and evil spirits coming down into the house. The Daru is covered with a thick layer of tar from the fires that are annually lighted upon it, and close to the claves are very ancient Roman wells. It is an instance of the irony of etymology that the word hell means a place of fireless darkness. Nor is the fact that the name of the Scandinavian demoness, Hel, phonetically corresponding with Kali, the Black One, Goth, Halja, whose abode was an icy hole, has her name preserved as a place of fiery torment without significance. In regions where cold was known to an uncomfortable extent, as well as heat, we usually find it represented in the ideas of future punishment. 
The realm called Hades, meaning just the same as hell, suggests cold. Tertullian and Jerome say that Christ's own phrases, outer darkness and the gnashing or chattering of teeth, suggest a place of extreme cold alternating with the excessive heat. Traces of similar speculations are found with the rabbis. Gehenna had both water and fire. Noah saw the angel of death approaching and hid from him for 12 months. Why 12? Because, the rabbis explain, such is the trial of sinners. Six in water, six in fire. For example, Dante has frigid as well as burning hells, and the idea was refined by some scholars to a statement which would seem to make the alternations of future punishment amount to a severe sickness and fever. There are also blended rabbinical notions, painting the terrible picture of the frozen continent, where he writes, The parching air burns frore, and cold forms the effect of fire, thither by harpy-footed furies hold. At certain revolutions all the damned are brought and feel by turns the bitter change of fierce extremes, extremes by change more fierce. From beds of raging fire to starve in ice, their soft ethereal warmth, and there to pine, immovable, infixed, and frozen round with which may be compared Shakespeare's lines in Measure for Measure. The delighted spirit to bathe in fiery floods or to reside in thrilling region of thick-ribbed ice. Delving deep into Thibet culture, Thibet hell is believed to have 16 circles, 8 burning, 8 frozen, which attributes to the rapid changes of their climate between the extremes of heat and cold. Plutarch, Relating the vision of Thespius in Hades speaks of the frozen region there. Denise Le Chatreau says the severest of infernal torments is freezing. In the Chaldonia of Shepherds, 1506, a legend runs, Lazarus said, I saw a floody of prosone yice, in the which envious men and women were prolonged unto the navel. And then suddenly came a coldly widening right great that blew and died deep down, all the envious into the coldy water, that nothing was seen of them. The demon of cold has a habitat, naturally, in every northern region. He is the Qi Mung of China, who, man-shaped, dragon-headed, haunts the Chang River. In Greenland, it is Erelusortok, who suffers perpetual agony, and leaps on soul at death to satisfy his hunger. The Chinos, demons, of the Mimax of Nova Scotia present certain features of the race demons, but are fearfully cold. The Chenu weapon is a dragon's horn. His yell is fatal to the hearer. His heart is a block of ice. This heart must be destroyed if the demon is to be slain, but it can only be done by melting it in the fire. The chief precaution required is that one is not drowned in the flood so caused. The icy demon survived long in Scotland, accounted for by Sir James Melville in his memoirs, says, The spirit or devil that helped the Scottish witches to raise the storm in the Sea of Norway was cold as ice and his body hard as iron. 
His face was terrible, his nose like the beak of an eagle. With great burning eyes, his hands and legs hairy, with claws of his nails like a griffin. This type of demon haunted people's minds in Scandinavia, where through traditions of a flame demon, Loki, and the end of the world by fire were imported. The popular beliefs seemed to have been mainly occupied with frost giants and the formidable Oiger, god of the Black Sea East Winds, preserved in our word or Anglo-Saxon, Eri, and more directly in the name of our familiar demon, the Ogre, so often slain in the child's gladsheim, Loki, spirit fire, was indeed speedily relegated by the Aesir, the gods, to a hidden subterraneous realm, where his existence could only be known by the earthquakes, geysers, and Hecla eruptions which he occasioned. Yet he was to come forth at Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods. We can see a singular blending of tropical and frigid zones. The one traditional, the other native. In the prose Edda, Ganglia asks, What will remain? After heaven and earth, and the whole universe shall be consumed, and after all the gods and the homes of Valhalla and all mankind shall have perished. There will be many abodes, replied Thridi, some good, some bad. The best place of all to be in will be Gimel, in heaven, and all who delight in quaffing good drink will find a great store in the hall called Brimmer, which is also in heaven, in the region of Okolini. There is also a fair hall of ruddy gold, Sindra, which stands on the mountains of Nida. In those halls, righteous and well-minded men shall abide. In Nystrond, there is a vast and direful structure, with doors that face the north. It is formed entirely of the backs of serpents, wattled together like wickerwork. But the serpents' heads are turned towards the inside of the hall, and continuously vomit forth floods of venom, in which wade all those who commit murder, or who forswear themselves. As it is said in the Volspar, she saw a hall, far from the sun, in Nastrond standing, northward the doors look, and venom drops, fall in through loopholes. Formed is that hall, of wreathed serpents, there saw she wade, through heavy streams, men forsworn and murderers. These names for the heavenly regions and their occupants indicate sunshine and fire. Gimel means fire, Gamir. Brimmer, Brimmy, means flame. The giant and Sindri, Cinder. The dwarf, jeweler of the gods, are raised to halls of gold. Nothing is said of a garden or walking therein in the cool of day. On the other hand, Nastrond means strand of the dead in that region whose doors face the north, far from the sun, we behold an inferno of extreme cold. Christianity has not availed to give the Icelanders any demonic name suggestive of fire. They speak of Skrati, the Rora, and Kolski, the coal black one, but promise nothing so luminous and comfortable as fire or fire fiend to the evildoer. In the great epic of Niblugan Lied, we have probably the shape in which the Northman's dream of paradise is finally cohered. 
a rose garden in the south guarded by a huge worm, a water snake or glittering glacial sea, whose glowing charms with beauty for their queen could be won only by a brave dragon slaying Siegfried. Now we look at England, partly because of an account of its harsh climate, once had the reputation of being the chief abode of demons. A demoness leaving her lover on the continent says, My mother is calling me in England. In Christianizing Ireland, Iona, and other islands far north, it was preliminary to expel the demons. The Clave, the Deciul, and other Hebrides islands, fire carried round cattle to defend them from demons, and around mothers not yet churched to keep the babes from being changed show that the expulsion still goes on, though in such regions Norse and Christian notions have become so jumbled that it is fighting the devil with fire. So in the Havamal, men are warned to invoke fire for distempers. And they sing, Raise ye Giles an oaken pile, let it under heaven the lightest be, may it burn a breast full of woes, the fire round my heart is sorrow's melt. The last line is in contrast with the Hindu saying, The flame of her husband's pyre cools the widow's breast. The characters of the northern heaven and hell survive in the English custom of burying the dead on the southern side of the church. How widely this usage prevailed may be seen by reference on churchyards. The north side of the graveyard was set apart for unbaptized infants and executed criminals, and it was permitted the people to dance or play tennis in that part. Others say that in the churchyard at Morwenstow, the southern portion only contains graves, the north part being untenanted, as the Cornish believe, following old traditions, that the north is the region of demons. In some parishes of Cornwall, when a baptism occurs, the north door of the nave opposite the front is thrown open, so that the devil, cast out, may retire to his own region, the north. Indeed, it is not improbable that the fact noted by White in his History of Selborne that the usual approach to most country churches is by the south, indicating a belief that the sacred edifice should turn its back on the regions of demons. It is a singular instance of survival which has brought about the fact that people who listen devoutly to sermons describing the fiery character of Satan and his abode should surround the very churches in which those sermons are heard with evidences of their lingering faith that the devil belongs to the region of ice, and that their dead must be buried in the direction of the happy abode of Brimmer and Sindri, fire and cinders. Lenormant has written an extremely instructive chapter in comparison of the Arcadian and the Finnish mythologies. He there shows that they are as one and the same tree, adapted to antagonistic climates with similar triad, ruins, charms, and even names in some cases. Their regard for the fire worshipped by both varies in a way that seems at first glance somewhat anomalous. The Arcadians in their fire worship exhausted the resources of praise in description of glory and power to the flames. The Finns in their cold home celebrated the fire festival at the winter solstice, uttered invocations over the fire, and the mother of the family, with her domestic libation, said, Always rise so high, O my flame, but burn not larger nor more ardent. 
the diminution of enthusiasm in the Northern Fire worshipper as compared may only be the result of euphemism in the latter. Or perhaps while the formidable character of the Fire God among the primitive Assyrians is indicated in the utter prostration before him. The true nature of this anomaly becomes visible when we consider that the great demon, dreaded by the two countries drawing their cult from a common source, represented the excess of the power most dreaded. The demon in each case was a wind. Among the Finns, the north wind. Among the Acadians, the southwest, most fiery winds. The Finnish demon was Hiisi, speeding on his pale horse through the air, with a terrible train of monster dogs, cats, furies, scattering pain, disease, and death. The Akkadian demon, of which the bronze image is the Lauvur, is the body of a dog, erect on eagle's feet, its arms pointed with lion's paws. It has the tail of a scorpion and the head of a skeleton, half stripped of flesh, preserving the eyes, and mounted with the horns of a goat. It has four outspread wings. On the back of this ingeniously horrible image is an inscription in the Akkadian language, appraising us that it is the demon of the southwest wind made to be placed at the door or window to avert its hostile action. As we observe such figures as these on the one hand, and on the other hand the fair beings imagined to be antagonistic to them, we must note in ruins and incantations how intensely the ancients felt themselves to be surrounded by these gods and evil powers, and, reading nature so, learned to see in the seasons successfully conquering and conquered by each other, an alternation of longer days and longer nights, the changing fortunes of a never-ending battle. We may better realize the meaning of solstitial festivals, the customs that gathered around Yuletide and New Year, and the manifold survivals from them, which annually masquerade in Christian costume and names. To our sun-worshipping ancestors, the new year meant the first faint advantage of the warmer time over winter, as nearly as it could be fixed for those waiting for winter to end. The hovering of day between superiority of light and darkness is now named, and comparisons drawn. At Yuletide, the dawning victory of the sun is seen as a holy infant in a manger amid beasts of the storm. The old nature worship has bequeathed to Christian belief close-fitting mantles, but the old idea of a war between the wintry and the warm powers still haunts the period of the new year. And the twelve days and nights once believed to be the period of a fiercely contested battle between good and evil demons are still regarded by many as a period for special watchfulness and prayer. New Year's Eve in the north of England still uses the phrase Hogmanay, also known as Midwinter Night, when the sacrifices of Thor were prepared, formerly had many observances which reflected the belief that good and evil ghosts were contending for every man and woman. The air was believed to be swarming with them, and watch must be kept to see that the protecting fire did not go out in any household, that no strange man, woman, or animal approached, possibly a demon in disguise. Sacred plants were set indoors, and windows to prevent the entrance of any malevolent being from the multitudes filling the air. John Wesley, a man whose noble heart was allied with a mind strangely open to stories of hobgoblins, led the way of churches and sects back into this ancient atmosphere. Nevertheless, the rationalism of the age has influenced St. Wesley's feast. 
titled Watch Night. It can hardly recognize its brother in the Boar's Head Banquet of Queen's College, Oxford, which celebrated victory over Tuscany winter. The decapitated demon whose bristles were once icicles. Yet, what the Watch Night really signifies, in that antiquarian sense, is just that old cultivating combat between the powers of fire and frost. Once believed to determine human fates, in White Russia on New Year's Day, when the annual elemental battle has been decided, the killed and wounded on one hand and the fortunate on the other are told by carrying from house to house the rich and the poor, Koyaras. These are two children, one dressed in fine attire and crowned with a wreath of full ears of grain, the other ragged and wearing a wreath of threshed straw. These having been closely covered, each householder is called in and chooses one. If his choice chances upon the poor Kolyada, the attending chorus chant a mournful strain, in which he is warned to expect a bad harvest, poverty and perhaps death. If he selects the rich Kolyada, a cheerful song is sung promising him harvest, health and wealth. The natives of certain districts of Dardistan assign political and social significance to their Feast of Fire, which is celebrated in the month preceding winter, at New Moon. Just after their meat provision for the season is laid into dry, their legend has it that it is when their national hero slew their ancient tyrant and introduced good government. This legend, related elsewhere, is of a tyrant slain through the discovery that his heart was made of snow. He was slain by the warmth of torches. In the celebrations, all the men of the villages go forth with torches which they swing round their heads and throw in the direction of Gilgit, where the snow-hearted tyrant so long held his castle. When the husbands return home from their torch throwing, a little drama is rehearsed. The wives refuse them entrance till they have entreated, re-encounting the benefits that they have brought them. After admission, the husband affects sulkness and must be brought round with caress to join in the banquet. The wife leads him forward with this song. Thou hast made me glad, thou favourite of the Raja. Thou hast rejoiced me, O bold horseman. I am pleased with thee, who so well who set the gun and sword. Thou hast delighted me, O thou invested with a mantle of honours. O great happiness, I will buy it by giving pleasure's price. O thou nourishment, to us, heap of corn, store of ghee, delighted will I buy it all, by giving pleasures, price. And this concludes chapter 3 of Demonology and Devil Law. Just great. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. My biggest takeaway from this is that hell is already frozen over. The reference that hell is heavily represented by the North, the extreme colds and extreme heat both playing a role in hell, really surprised me. And when I read the part about chattering teeth and a void of darkness, both representing cold and heat just blew my mind. And the thought of demons having icicles for beards was so different. And what really shocked me is that murderers and infants were buried in unmarked graves in the northernmost parts of churches, where people were able to play and relax, very little care for the dead. I wonder why infants and murderers were put together. 
Also, much like my previous demonology episodes, there is that thread of culture that runs through all of the myths, in that despite being scattered across the globe, our story is spoken in so many languages, with different ideas and concepts by different people, all seem to share similar commonalities. Absolutely fascinating. Well, listeners, stick with me Friday for a listener-submitted no sleep and more awesome stories. As always, till next time.